Good morning. Tim Rogers, lead pastor, Grace Point Church. Glad to have you all with us. Thanks for making it this morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Uh, I'm really grateful that you're here or that you're listening later online. We hope that uh, no matter your experience with us this morning, that your heart and your mind and your your affections are lifted toward God and away from the things that kind of keep us um, in our little world and thinking about our concerns. Um, we, we are gathered here to continue now a, um, a, a teaching series that we're simply calling Deeply Rooted. This series is really based off of a core value that we have at Grace Point Church and begins this way. It says that at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge and what he wants goes. With every core value that we have, we have an abiding question that goes along with it. And the question that goes along with this one is this. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? If we believe that at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge and what he wants goes, how much authority am I willing to give to him and his word in my life? And what we said last week is that here's what we know about commitments, that commitments ebb and flow, right? You can be more or less committed to something based on the weather, based on how you're feeling, based upon relationships, status, and all that, right? I mean, if we're honest, we can be more and less committed to our favorite sports team, depending on their win and loss record. We can be more or less committed to our hobby, depending on whether it's raining or windy outside. We can be more or less committed to our marriage, depending on what's going on between us, right? We can be more or less committed to our faith depending on what's going on around us. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with is not just at a big picture level, do I believe that God is in charge and his word has authority, but right now, this is the question I want us to think about, how am I responding right now to God and his word? Not at some point in the past have I said that I believe God's in charge, not at some point in the past have I said I'm committed to God. I want us to think right now, right now, what is the condition of that commitment right now? Because we know commitments ebb and flow. What is the condition of my commitment to this right now? Now, for some of you, I want to say this right now. Some of you this morning, you're, you may be visiting, you may be a regular attender, you may be listening online, and you, you have never made a commitment to God. You've never made a commitment to Jesus and to following him. This is not for you, right? You can just listen and you can poke fun, whatever you want to do. You can, you can uh, get on Facebook, whatever you want to do. But this is for those people who have said, I am following Jesus and I have committed my life to his ways. I want to be committed to him. So for those people who have said that, this is the kind of thing that we need to talk about together. Where are we going and where is our commitment lie? So we talk about this and here's where we're going to go this week because last week we've been in this, uh, this we started to get into this parable, the parable of the seed and the sower. And Jesus um, comes in and tells a story or a parable and we have our image up here of the seed that's planted and the roots that are going down below the surface and the, the sprouts that are coming above the surface. And Jesus has, uh, has walked into a, a period of his ministry in Israel at the time and people are gathered around him and he tells a parable, a story about a farmer who goes out to sow. And he says, and he throws some seed here and there and here and there. And some seed falls on the hard path where it is taken away by the birds because the path is too hard. And then today's soil is different. The today's soil falls on rocky places. And we talked about the hard soil last week. We realized that when we kind of close our hearts to the things of God, that we no longer listen or understand for what he wants to do that it becomes easier and easier not to obey and not to do the things that I should do when I at first push away the things I know I should do. Haven't we had this experience? When we, when we give in to temptation one time, it's easier to do it the next time, right? When we have the first piece of cake, it's easier to have 
the second, fourth, and seventh piece of cake, right? That comes out. It's just easier to do things the more we do them. And this is the deal with the hard heart and the hard soil. Now, this week, it's different. This week, the farmer goes out to sow, and he throws seed, and it falls into the rocky places. Now, to get us thinking about this, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been into something that someone else has wanted to also get into, but hasn't gotten into it as much as you've gotten into it because their heart isn't into it? Got it? In other words, have you ever gotten involved in something? Let's say you've, you've watched people like our musicians up here playing guitar, or playing keyboard, or playing drums. And you're like, man, that looks so cool. I wish that I could get into that. I wish, you know, I'm going to try to play guitar. I'm going to try to play drums. And then you try to get into it, and you realize how much it takes to get into it. And you realize, I don't really want to get into it. I've got to play the scales. Are you kidding me? I just thought I got to play up front, and it would be kind of fun to play up front, right? Athletically, you ever been to a game when you're a little kid or whatever? And you're like, Man, that's so awesome that he scored the winning goal with no time left on the clock. Wouldn't it be awesome to play soccer? And then you start to play soccer and you realize they've got to train like maniacs to be in good enough cardio shape to be in a position to even score at the end of the game. And there's all this work and training that goes on behind the scenes. You're like, I wish I could get into it, but now that I realize what it takes to get into it, I'm not really into it, right? Isn't this true for our relationships too? Like, mm, wouldn't it be cool when I see someone who's married for like 50 years, 60 years, and you look at their marriage and you think that would be so awesome. If I could find someone to be with for the rest of my life like that, I would really be into that. Then you start dating. You realize, man, what's wrong with these people? Like, they don't see the world the way I do. You know, what's wrong? And then you realize that there's relationship problems, and you realize it's harder than it looks to get through all this stuff to make it to 50 and 60 years. There's just hard stuff, right? This is the reality of anything, that we have to press through some hard times. I want to tell you the story to kind of bring this home of um, a lady by the name of Lieutenant Heather Penny. This was printed this week in the Seattle Times. Lieutenant Heather Penny um, grew up with her dad being an F-16 fighter pilot. And um, Heather Penny, is, she's known by the, the name Lucky, um, when Congress opened up the, the U.S. Air Force for women to fly fighter jets. She was one of the first in line to do that. And Lucky, or Heather Penny, um, signed up, and she's on board now as a, as a lieutenant flying in the, in the Air Force. Twelve years ago, on September 11th, 2001, Tuesday morning, around nine in the morning, when the first plane hit the tower, she recalls being in a briefing room and hearing that news that a plane had hit the World Trade Center and thought, and this is what she said, we thought it was some Yahoo in a Cessna who just... Hit the, hit the plane, hit the tower. A Cessna is a smaller aircraft, one or two-seater, whatever it might be. But she said, when the second one hit, we knew we were at war. And then we heard that there might be three or four, and who knows how many more. And the orders came in pretty quickly for, for Heather Penny that day, and the orders were this, take down United Flight 93. So if you can imagine this for a minute, she's sitting in the briefing room, and within minutes, her life is going to change. Take down... United Flight 93. Take down a passenger aircraft, a civilian aircraft with children and salespeople and loved ones. Take that down. That's your command. Now, in that moment, does your interest in being a top gun aviator with the glory of Hollywood come to mind? In that moment of difficulty, what am I going to do? Does this not test your allegiance? 
Why am I here? Why am I being a fighter pilot? My command is to take down a civilian aircraft. Now, add to that this difficulty. At Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, where she was stationed at the time, in that time, and we didn't have what they would say is, is hot aircraft available. In other words, the aircraft that she was told to get into and go was equipped with no ammunition. No live ammunition. The only thing that she had to throw at that plane to take it down was her plane. It would take an hour to equip her F-16 for battle. And the order came in now. Take down Flight 93. What do you do? She knew this was a suicide mission. She said, I was essentially a kamikaze pilot. All of those visions and dreams of the glory and grandeur of being an F-16 pilot in that moment are gone. They're gone. And here's what we know. Here's what we know. This simple truth. That the best test, there's no better test of our allegiance than a test. Right? There's no better test of our allegiance than a test. There's no better way to know, do you really want to play the piano than to force you to do the scales when you don't feel like it? There's no better way to test, are you really into athletics, than to have you train and sweat like you've never done before to see if you really want to do this. There's no better way to test the allegiance of a fighter pilot to their country and to their nation and to their creed than to say, go take down Flight United 93 yourself with no ammunition. There's no better test of our allegiance than a test. There's also no better test of our faith than a test, right? There's no better way to know if what you say you believe is true than to test that in you and to test that in me. There is no better way to test the allegiance of our faith than to go through a test. And this is what Jesus knows about the seed or the word of God that is planted around in the lives of people around us. That there is sometimes a reaction to that that is a reaction of great joy and happiness, but the root doesn't come. And this is the story of the parable in Matthew 13. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible near you or with you, there's one near you in the pew right around you. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible that you're picking up is our gift to you this morning. You can take that, run with that, read that, find the life of God within those pages. Matthew chapter 13. The book of Matthew is the first book in what we call the New Testament. So you flip uh, two-thirds of the way through the Bible and you'll find uh, Matthew. Then it goes Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first what we call gospel. It's the first accounting of Jesus' life. Uh, Matthew is one of the disciples of Jesus, and in Matthew 13, he's writing about what he accounted for, what he saw in the life of Jesus. Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21 will be where we read this morning, reading really the second seed, the second soil that is planted. And Jesus is now, we're jumping into a point where Jesus is explaining to his disciples what happened with the seed that was planted. And he said this in verse 20, The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with what? Joy. But since he has no what? Root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Now, because this is such a complex thought, I've created for you this morning a 
complex diagram. You need to get ready for this situation here because this is going to be tough. The person who receives the message receives it with, okay, we got that covered. They receive it, the, the first receipt is joy, okay? And then after they receive it, then something happens. They end up sad. They've gone away. It says that, that, that after something happens, they fall away. So we have, we have someone in here who is introduced as a person of joy, and then at the end they fall away. Now something happens between this person and that person. Notice the arrow. Okay, don't miss the arrow. Now what happens between the joy person and the sad person is, is also a complex reality, and that is something hard happens. Okay, we have the situation under control. Complex diagram. We have someone who is at once filled with joy, and then goes through something hard and now is really sad okay. or has now fallen away. Okay? And this is the, the essence of the parable. It is not a difficult reality to, to see, is it? Someone who receives it with joy, someone who says, I love to play the, the guitar or the piano. Man, I love the way they, that Derek beats on the drums up here. Man, that's awesome. He doesn't even wear shoes. Maybe I could do that too. That would be so cool. If I could do that, and at once you receive it with joy, you get inspired to do it, and you think, man, this would be great, and then you have to do something hard, like practice on your own, and you're like, ooh, I'm going to leave it. I don't want to do it. It's too much, right? This is the way it is for everything. Sports, the same thing. We've, we've covered that. For business, starting a business, that'd be awesome. Maybe I could be a, an entrepreneurial millionaire like, like everybody else, quote unquote, right, who starts their own business. Then you start your own business and go through something hard. And then you're like, eh, this is not worth it. I'm going to work for somebody else because this is the movement in the text. This is the same thing for faith. So here's the deal. There are people who've received the message of God with joy. Man, this is awesome. Isn't this cool? Like there are times when God's word hits us at a moment where we just needed to hear it. And it really lifts your spirit. It really says, man, this is what life is about. I needed to connect with God, and I heard that word this morning. I needed that. Man, that was awesome. And I'm telling you now, from here on out, I'm telling you, I'm going to follow God for the rest of my life. I'm receiving this with joy. Yeah. And then you go through something hard. Like, Now, wait a minute. Why is it? Why is it that this is happening? And some people leave what they at first committed to with great joy. But not everybody does, do they? Not everybody does. This soil is not true for everybody. And so my question is, what is the assumption about God that makes someone go from being joyful to ending up walking away from the truth of God that they at once embraced with joy? And so to move my complex diagram over here, here is an assumption that this sad person has, I believe, about God. The person who leaves the message of, of the truth of God when things get hard believes this, I believe. That God is for my good, therefore, he will give me, what? Good things. This is the base assumption, I believe, as someone who receives the message with joy. Man, God is for my good. Mm, let's praise him. Let's sing it out. Let's let it happen. He is for my good. Therefore, and we don't say it, but we think it, Therefore, he's going to deliver for me good things. He's going to deliver for me good things. And we're kind of in this nonverbal contract. God, I'm going, to, I'm going to use your name here and there. I'm going to try to be moral. I'm going to try to be right. And I'm going to just need you to hold up your end of the deal. And that is like, I need a girlfriend. So, 
like, I'll follow you, and this needs to happen, okay? And let's just kind of, mm-hmm, right? Okay? I'll, and then all of a sudden you break up, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. Not in the contract, God. You know what? I'm going through something hard. And wait, I just need money. Like, I need to pay rent, and this is not working, and I need to pay off loans. And God, I'm following you, right? And so here's the deal. I'm giving you some. I know you're for my good. And so, like, don't just kind of keep delivering good things for me. And i got to raise kids, and don't let them go off and do. And, and when it happens, then what, well, then maybe what I believed wasn't true. Or maybe my assumption about who God is wasn't true. So here's what I believe the joyful person who truly is joyful should assume about God. God is for my good. Therefore, he will allow anything to make me stronger. God is still for my good. But he will allow anything in my life to make me stronger. And if that's our worldview, if that's our assumption, I'm telling you, and you know this already, that stepping into those hard things when things with your spouse are not working, when things with your dating life are not working, when things financially are not working, and it seems like, why am I doing this? Okay, God will allow anything in my life to make me stronger. He is for my good. James talks about this in the first chapter of his letter that he wrote. Consider it pure, some of you know this, consider it pure what? Joy. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And then we think James is an idiot. Like, what are you talking about? Why? Because stepping into the hard things is the way that God shapes us to lean on him in ways that we ordinarily would not. So the seed that is planted in the rocky soil is a seed that is planted in the person, and the person believes this, that God is for my good, therefore he will give me good things. And when the hard things come, I'm leaving God. I'm going to assume my assumptions about God were right, but I'm just leaving God because he clearly doesn't get it. So I want to talk about the so what right away this morning. I want to talk about the so what. I have a concern. I have a concern about the future of the church in general. I have a concern about the future of the church in general. And here's what I mean. I believe that we have uh, an opportunity uh, and a responsibility to cultivate soil within the next generation. Right? Do you agree with that? We have an opportunity and responsibility to cultivate the right kind of soil for the next generation. In other words, there are, there are people, there are young people, there are small people in the nursery who are right now spitting up on our nursery workers, okay? Who one day will grow up to be great men and women, okay? And we, we pray and we hope they'll be great men and women of God and of the faith and continue to grow and push us to follow Jesus. That's what we hope for. But we have an opportunity and a responsibility to cultivate the right kind of soil and faith environment for the next generation and for ourselves. And here's what's happening within North America, by and large. We have... Um, we have a movement, okay? We have a movement, and you'll, you'll, you'll see this, I believe, very easily. There's a movement a- away from Jesus Christ as, as our, our, our Savior and our declared, um, spoken, uh, verbal Savior to speaking about uh, kind of the love of God, the hope of God, um, being nice and being moral as kind of a substitute religion that really what religion does, or really what church does, and you've heard it this way, where people have said, I want to bring my kids to church because I want them to grow up right. 
In other words, I expect the church to provide a moral framework for my children. It's an instrument to use to help train my children to be nice and to be kind to one another, that they can be functioning members of society in a healthy way. And this is kind of what I hope the church will do because I know the Sunday school teachers won't swear at my kids. They're not going to beat them by and large, okay? And sometimes they want to, but they don't, okay? You know, I, I expect that the church will kind of help provide a moral framework. In 2003 to 2005, a national study on youth and religion was done, a comprehensive survey of really the youth culture in North America. It's our most current data that we have on this, even though it's a little bit dated yet. And a lady by the name of Kenda Dean wrote a book she called Almost Christian, Almost Christian. And in that book, she writes uh, really about this youth culture and the, re- the reality that the youth culture reflects the greater reality of our adult faith. Okay? In other words, youth culture never stands alone. It stands as a reflection or a reaction against how they've been raised. Okay? That's the reality. So when we look at youth culture, we also look at adult culture, non-youth culture, okay? no matter how old you are. And here's what Kenda Dean has to say. She says, let me save you some trouble. Here's the gist of what you're about to read. American young people are theoretically fine with religious faith, but it does not concern them very much. And it is not durable enough to survive long after they graduate from high school. One more thing. We're responsible. We're responsible. She puts into language a a term that has been used for years now, but she uses this term, and this actually is a little more complex. It's a little more, um, actually more significant than my, my awesome complex diagram earlier. She uses this term called... Right? Some of you wonder, how do you pronounce that word? Okay, Moralistic therapeutic deism. Isn't that great? You're going to leave church and someone's going to say, what did they talk about this morning? You're like, I have no idea. Some multi-syllable thing in the middle of that. I have no idea what he's talking about. Deism, I don't know. Something about night being nice and youth, and I don't know. One word at a time. Deism. Deism assumes that there is a God who created everything, but is kind of gone. Okay? He's just not involved in the day-to-day. Big God out there. And you hear people talk about it all the time, right? Athlete who scores a touchdown, man, praise God. Whoever, some God out there, of course, when I fumble, I don't praise God. I, I, don't know, do I, I don't know who I praise at that point. But okay, praising God in general, that this deistic worldview. Therapeutic means that God is really there to be your, your big therapist in the sky. Like, you're not feeling well? Oh, come on over and sit down. Man, let's talk about you feeling sad today. You don't feel like you're quite up to par. Let's talk about that. And I'm your therapist, but only when you need me. Okay, I'm all, only when you need me. And moralistic, meaning that God is primarily interested in you being a moral person. Okay, and we put all that together, and we have a couple points here to think about. Number one, that there's this God exists who created and ordered the world. That there's this viewpoint now, within, primarily within youth culture and young adult culture as well. Oh yeah, there's a God out there. He created the world, and he orders it. But he's not really involved in my life. He wants people to be good, nice, and fair. This is what God wants from people. This is what, by the way, most world religions want from people, including what, I guess, the Christian God or whatever you want to call it, wants from people. He wants people, by and large, to be good, nice, and fair. Thirdly here, life's central goal is to be happy and, and feel good, because isn't that what it's about? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? It sounds like, isn't that in the Bible somewhere? That this is what we want, right? Number four, God is not involved in my daily life except when I need a problem solved. The God who made everything doesn't actually walk into the lives that you live. He's just around, and when you need him, when you need him, man, just, just send a text, all right? Just, just give a call. I mean, just Instagram me, baby, Snapchat me, and I'm good to go, and I'll you know, connect with you on whatever you need, and then we're, we can move on from there. 
Number five, finally, good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die, because why wouldn't they? You know, isn't that what God is about? People who are good and happy, they just kind of go to heaven. Here's moralistic therapeutic deism, and here's the rocky soil that I'm telling you every time, every time, will create exactly what Jesus just said. A seed that is planted in moralistic therapeutic deism will plant a seed in the rocky soil of this, where it will land and it will feel like, ooh, I should go to church, and ooh, I should be nice, and oh, morality is the the zenith, the apex of what Christianity is about, and being kind and good, and God wants that for everybody. Man, we need to be tolerant of everybody who is kind and good and moral. This is what it's about, isn't it? I mean, God may or may not be involved in my life in the little stuff, but he is in the big stuff. And this rocky soil, every time, and you know this is going to be true, every time, though, you're going to have to go through a trial where your assumptions about God are going to be pushed. When he's not there to be your therapist and doesn't, you don't know how to get through this thing. When I thought I was supposed to be good and happy and kind and fair and life isn't fair right now, it's not happy. What do I do? The seed is not deeply rooted, and I have a concern for us about the future. I have a concern for us as men in leading our families and serving our families. When we go through times of trouble and difficulty with our children, with our spouses, to lead our children and our spouses back to Jesus, not just back to getting through your problem and figuring it out. There is a concern if we are not leading our families and serving one another and moving us back to sin and repentance, and trusting in Jesus when, when all we're doing is saying that God is for you, he's for your benefit, he's for your good. He wants you to be happy. This is how God has made you. This is how he structured the world. And we try to encourage, and oh, get, it's okay, come on, honey, I'll, just, I'll, I'll help you through that. I'll help you through that, but I'll help you through understanding the impact of sin. And this is sin in your life right now. The reason that you're suffering like this is boom, 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 boom. Turning our children, turning our youth, turning our hearts and our spouses back to the cross of Jesus Christ, to sin, repentance, and faith, not just to a God who wants us to be moral, kind, and good. That is rocky soil, and it is a a hybrid of religion that looks like Christianity, but is not that does not trumpet the truth of Jesus' salvation for all people, that does not lovingly draw people into the hope of eternal life, but rather says kindness, goodness, happiness. We're there for you. Tolerance. Good. I have a concern for the future. Secondly, what's my assumption as I reflect on this? What's my assumption about God and his goodness? As I think about where I land in the soil Right now, when I think about God and his goodness, would I put myself in the position where I say, I think God is for my good, therefore he must deliver good things for me? Or do I have the worldview that says God is for my good, and even through the hard stuff, I know that he's going to allow anything to happen that's for my good? To be honest with you, to share with you personally now, here's, here's a question that I ask. Where do I go in times of trouble? 
And I've been through my share of trouble, probably not like your share. Some of you had more shares of trouble than I have had. I think I've had more than some of you have had. All of us have different shares of trouble that we have. And I'm just going to speak candidly with you now, not that I don't all the time, but especially now. There are times when your faith is really tested, isn't it? There are times when you look around and you see the pain in your family and the pain in your own life and the doubt in your own mind about what you say you believe. And you wonder, is this really true? Is this really right? Is this really it? I mean, can all the people in the world who don't believe this be wrong? Right? Is this worldview really it? You know, what do I do in times of trouble? Sometimes that's personal trouble where you're just kind of introspectively thinking about, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if this is true. For me, someone once said to me, Tim, there's some questions whose answers escape you and some questions whose answers you can't escape. There's some questions whose answers escape you and some questions whose answers you can't escape. In other words, there are some foundational things that I know to be true that I have to come back to all the time. Just two things. One, there was someone named Jesus who walked on the earth. Fact. Number two, what do I do with the resurrection of Jesus? Out of all the worry and doubt that I have, why did he allow that person to die early? Why is he allowing sickness in my family? Why is it, and many of you know that we weren't sure about our middle daughter, whether she would uh, make it or not in the womb. There's a 99% fatality rate for, for children with the sequestration that she had in her lung. And those moments when my wife and I were wondering about, is she going to make it or not? You wonder, okay, God, come on, what's the deal? Didn't I say I'd do this if you would, right? And now I'm in the triangle of hard stuff, so what gives? In those moments, okay, what do I do? Forget all the pain and stuff. What do I do with the resurrection of Jesus? If that thing is true, then I'm telling you, any day of the week, I'm going to follow a man who predicts his own death and resurrection and comes back to life. Any day of the week. I don't care the pain that I'm going through. Any day of the week, you can predict your own death and come back to life in three days. I'm following you. I'm telling you that. And you know you would too. And I come back to that base reality when the hard stuff really hits and really presses in. There is a man who walked into a torture chamber in Jerusalem. He knew he was going to be punished brutally, physically, and he walked into that with incredible courage, ready to die for the sake of his mission. I come back to the base essentials in those hard times. What do I really know is true? There was a Jesus, and what do I do with the resurrection? Then I come back to this reality. There is no better test of our faith than a test. There's no better test of our faith than a test. And it's going to tell you, and it's going to tell you about your kids. It's going to tell us about our kids. It's going to tell you about your own faith. When you walk into the triangle of hard times, what am I going to come out looking like? What am I going to come out looking like? Lieutenant Penny, on that morning of September 11, 2001, her commanding officer, Colonel Sesseville, opened the door of that briefing room and said, Lucky, gear up. We need to take down United Flight 93. And they walked over together to the pre-flight um, area where they, they gear up. And they knew they had nothing to throw at this aircraft except for their own aircrafts. And Colonel Sasseville looked at her in the eye and said, I'll take the cockpit. And she said, I'll take the tail. And they took off from Andrews Air Force Base, and she says, for the last time. And as they were 
racing across the horizon at 400 miles an hour to intercept United Flight 93, they admitted, they thought, is it possible for us to hit the plane and eject at the same time? Is it possible to do that? And Lieutenant Penny here said, I knew that the only way to guarantee that this mission would be a success is if I carried my plane into the tail of that aircraft. If I ejected early and missed the tail and the jet flew through. And she didn't even have to finish her sentence. She knew that the success of that mission was more important than her own life. And she was in the air for what she thought was the last time, a kamikaze mission to take down United Flight 93 to fly her plane into the tail. What does that for people? Oh, there's a joy in being a fighter pilot. There's a glory in that. Ah, this goes deeper and you know it. You're told to get in and this is your last flight. You've got kids, for goodness sake, and the command comes in, take it down, take down the families in there and you're going to die in that process. And you have no time to react, but right now, go do it now. And she does it. And her plan was to go down with the mission. The mission was more important than her life. Come on, what does that for people? I'm telling you, and you know it, it's not rocky soil. There's no better test of her allegiance than this test. Do you, do you care about what you signed up for, Lieutenant Penny? And I'll tell you this, and you know this too, there's no better test of Jesus' allegiance to you than him following through on the, the same, essentially, suicide mission. In walking into Jerusalem in walking into the cross saying I've come for you I've come to seek and save those who are lost and I know that by coming to earth I'm going to die I'm going to be tortured I'm going to be hung on a cross for all ridicule I'm going to die for you and I'm going to do it a man who would walk into a town knowing this is the end incredible 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 and Jesus says hey listen you come with joy good 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 come with joy Let's pull the rocks out. Let's deepen your faith. And by doing that, I'm going to put you through some hard times. And I want you men, I want you women, who have the opportunity to shape the faith in the next generation, to pull out the rocks. Don't just point people to being kind because you know that when the test comes about whether you follow Jesus, being kind is not enough to make someone get in a plane and go fly into another plane. You know it's not enough. The soil is not deep enough. But when we point people back to Jesus, point them back to the cross, point them back to the sacrifice of a man who gave his life for us. This is enough to draw us back to commitment, to get rid of the rocks of just being committed to morality, being committed to being nice, being committed to being faithful in attendance. That stuff is immaterial. The commitment to Jesus, to his sacrifice and his love for us, is the rich soil. It's the rich soil where the sea can take root. This morning we have the opportunity to share in communion together as a body. And whether you're a part of our church, you call yourself a member or not, you're visiting for the first time here this morning, whatever it is, if you are in the position where you say that, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate with us in communion. And this opportunity to take communion this morning is really the opportunity to, to reflect and remember the truth of God and to re reflect and remember the life of Jesus on the cross for us. My hope as you take and eat the elements together is that we can remember and feel again. This is the commitment that Jesus made for us.
the commitment of his death that shed his blood and broke his body on the cross. And my hope for us when you take it is you can look again at your life and say, boy, are there rocks that I need to pull out of this soil? Are there places, conversations where I need to turn my family back to Jesus? I need to turn my belief back to the faith in Jesus Christ. That he alone is worthy of my worship. He alone is where my deep, deep, 